Welcome to the latest episode of The Wharton Current. My name is Nick Van Hollen, and today my co-host Thomas Obermeyer and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Megan O'Sullivan to discuss the geopolitics of the energy transition. Megan is the Jean Kirkpatrick Professor of the Practice of International Affairs and the Director of the Geopolitics of Energy Project at Harvard University's Kennedy School. Prior to joining the faculty at the Kennedy School, Megan worked at the National Security Council as the Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan, where she not only had an intimate view of the interconnections between energy, national security, and foreign policy, but was also responsible for maneuvering these levers via policymaking. In today's conversation, we explore how the geopolitics of energy will change during the transition to cleaner energy sources. We focus on the distinction between short and long-term implications of this transition, the geopolitical dynamics facing petrostates and clean energy supply chains, and energy's role in the ongoing war in Ukraine. For full disclosure, Megan teaches one of my favorite courses at the Kennedy School, and I had the privilege of working with her as a research assistant last fall. So this was a special episode for me and a fitting way to end my brief tenure as a co-host of The Wharton Current. I hope you'll enjoy. Megan, thanks so much for joining us on The Wharton Current today. We're very excited to have you on for what should be a really timely discussion about the geopolitics of energy. To start us off, could you give us a brief overview of your background and what you're currently working on? Sure, happy to. And I'm very glad to be joining you both. And of course, in describing what I do, I need to preface this by saying that I was Nick's professor. He was one of my fantastic research assistants at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I'm glad to see you in action and putting your energy expertise to great use here. I am a professor of the practice of international affairs at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. And there I work a lot on energy and geopolitics. And I think of that as really the intersection between big in, uh, changes in international politics and the energy landscape overall. Um, I also work a lot on American foreign policy, generally speaking, and particularly as it relates to the Middle East. And as you know, I've been at Harvard for more than a dozen years now. But before that, I was in the policy world where I worked for President Bush on a number of things, some of which related to energy, but primarily in the Middle East. Great. You mentioned in your introduction how you see energy geopolitics as, as this intersection between national security and foreign policy and energy. Are there any other broad stroke guardrails you would put down in terms of how you think about this space? And I ask because this will be the first time we've talked about energy geopolitics on this podcast. So I just want to make sure our audience has enough of an understanding of what this field means to you to be able to follow the conversation. Sure, no problem. Geopolitics, I guess, if you look it up, um, it has a very specific definition. It has to do with sources of power being related to geography, so physical landscape. I think how people tend to use it more nowadays and how I tend to use it more nowadays is basically about, you know, almost as synonymous as international politics, which is probably not exactly technically true, but it is widely accepted at this point in time. And attaching energy to geopolitics means something specific. And for me, it's really has to do with how energy shapes international politics and how international politics shape energy. So as I said, it's kind of the intersection between the two. But, you know, my whole approach to this particular topic is based on 
really the belief or the understanding that when you get a big change in geopolitical alignment, so a big change in how states interact with one another or how international organizations govern the the global space, that you should expect that to have implications for the world of energy, how we meet our energy needs. And similarly, if we have a big change in how energy is produced or stored or traded or or used, then we should expect that to influence politics because these two things are so closely related. That's really helpful context. And to segue into how you've gotten to that definition of energy geopolitics and what brought you into this space to begin with, you mentioned in your brief um, overview of, of your professional background that you worked in the White House in the Bush administration, and you were part of the team in the National Security Council there. Can you talk a little bit more about how those experiences shaped your career and how they pushed you into this focus area since then? Sure. I would say that it was over that period of time in government and even a little bit afterwards, reflecting on that time in government, that I really came to appreciate this very close connection between energy in international affairs. And that actually, when I look back at my time in government, I realized that if I had had a better appreciation for how fundamental energy was to the exercise of power in the international system, that I probably would have been, you know, I would have been a better practitioner. I would have been better at my job. I would have been better at advising people I worked with. I would have been better at understanding history. So it's almost um, as if, you know, I, I certainly worked on energy and I worked on, on geopolitics, but understanding how the two really inhabited the same space came to be something that I thought was really important to being a great practitioner. And it's one of the reasons why it's become one of the areas of my focus in the time since I, I left government. And, and I can give a short example if it's useful. You know, there are so many things that we can look at and realize that if, if we really understood the energy component of the problem at the time, that maybe we would have addressed the problem differently. And for me, you know, one of these moments is you know, I worked on Iraq for a long period of time, spent a lot of time trying to work with other countries in the Middle East to try to get them to support Iraq as Iraq was trying to transform itself away from an authoritarian history to a more democratic one. And Saudi Arabia was always a difficult um, partner in this. I wouldn't say it was even a partner. It was usually an obstacle in trying to help the Iraqis consolidate a more democratic uh, existence. And we always looked at it as being a product of Sunni-Shia tensions and historical and religious reasons. And in retrospect, you know, I realized that a lot of it was also about oil, it was about that Iraq was the only country in the region that actually had the reserves and the capacity and potentially the will, at least at the time, to challenge Saudi Arabia's dominant position in the oil markets. And so for that reason, in addition to whatever historical, cultural or religious reasons, the Saudis, you know, were really a very mixed minds about how successful they wanted to see Iraq be. And again, had I been more appreciative of the oil dimension to this relationship, I might have approached it differently and I might have been more effective. So that's, you know, it's those kinds of insights that led me to really focus on this in my post-government academic work. That's super helpful. And if we fast forward from Iraq to today in the energy transition, obviously geopolitics play an important role there. 
In January, you co-authored a really interesting article in Foreign Affairs with Jason Bordoff, who is the director of Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy and a former member of the Obama administration about the role of geopolitics in the energy transition. And you made a distinction between short-term and long-term implications, saying that short-term perils that will arrive in the next few decades as a result of the transition are more consequential right now than the long-term geopolitical implications in a future 2050 plus net zero world. How do you think about the distinction between those two, the short-term and the long-term implications of the energy transition? And why is it so important to think of them separately? Sure. Thanks for the question. And both Jason, who, as you mentioned, is my co-author, and he and I do a lot of work together. uh, Both he and I had this similar experience at different points in time that we were talking to people about this intersection of energy and geopolitics. And, you know, one person or the other would say, Well, you know, is it really important to focus on that? Because all of those complicated geopolitics around oil are going to disappear. And, you know, we're going to live in a world where there, you know, that is much more copacetic. You know, it's much more friendly and there are many fewer problems around energy because, you know, the the transition and a renewable energy net zero future is just going to have a lot less complicated geopolitics. And so, you know, it struck both Jason and me that that was really simplistic in many respects. And so the first work that I did on this intersection between energy and geopolitics was actually looking at, okay, what what does the world look like if we're successful? Like, so when we get to net zero 2050, what do the geopolitics of the world look like? And as I mentioned, you know, my feeling is if we have a huge change in the energy landscape, that should, you know, that will force big changes in politics. And as you both know, you know, to get to net zero by 2050 demands an enormous change in the system. It's a change in how we store, produce, use, you know, think about energy. It's remaking the entire backbone of the global energy economy. And if we did that, you know, there are going to be some geopolitical changes. So, you know, one of the things was to look at what the world might look like when we get there. And to me, that's an interesting picture. And my guess is it probably is less complicated, maybe more peaceful. More countries probably are able to meet their own energy needs. And that's probably a good thing. But, you know, what really struck me and Jason, my co-author, is that the distance between today and 2050 or whenever we get to net zero is, you know, that is a very long road. It's an uncertain road. It is a road where there are going to be lots of fits and starts and bumps. There's a lot of uncertainty along that transition. There's a lot of uncertainty, even if that transition will happen successfully. And if we just focus on the end state and miss the journey, then there's the possibility, of course, that the journey is never complete because we're not fully anticipating some of the risks along the way. And it turns out, as your question sort of suggested, that looking at the short term, there are a lot of geopolitics of oil and gas that are going to continue to persist. And then there are going to be a lot of new politics around solar and wind and hydrogen And these things are all going to be mixed up together. So it's not that one is going to gradually give way to the other and that the world is going to gradually get more peaceful and more easy to understand. It's more like it's going to be more complex because you have oil and gas geopolitics and then renewable energy geopolitics on top of it. 
And we really have to figure out, you know, what are the what are the things we need to anticipate so that we can ensure that this transition isn't derailed because of geopolitical, um, you know, effects that occur as countries, companies, or others really push towards a, a net zero future. Then maybe if we touch on those two themes, even though they'll be intertwined separately and start with oil, gas, and the petrostates. One main theme that came out of the article, as you've mentioned, is just the, the increased volatility that we will expect. How do you see the, the role of some of the major petrostates changing in that short-term period that you're looking at? Sure. And this is one of the areas where there have been a lot you know, there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there, which may not necessarily be correct. And so the general feeling, and it makes a certain amount of practical sense, people will think, well, if we're moving to a world that's going to be net zero, then we won't be using oil. And then petrostates are going to gradually lose power over time and become either less and less relevant, or they're going to be forced to make some kind of shift to a different kind of economy. And, you know, that's, that's one scenario under that things may play out along that one scenario. However, I think there's the much more likely possibility that petrostates will gain in power before they diminish in power. And the reason for that is a combination of how the transition is going to play out and the particular um, elements or aspects of the oil and gas industry. So we can see already, and really the, the Russia situation and the um, crisis in Ukraine has been you know, a demonstration of this, but we could see that there was already a gap between, a growing gap between supply and demand. Because of the energy transition, because of everyone's expectations that there is going to be an energy transition, that companies and co countries are gonna get more serious about an energy transition, there have been fewer people wanting to make investments into oil and gas production. And as a result, you saw that that production wasn't growing as robustly as it might have been. But at the same time, demand for these kinds of energy sources was increasing. So even though in a net zero world, we have to be using a lot less of oil and gas, we're not on that track. You know, We're still using more and more every year. So we were having this tension or this gap between production and demand, and that gap actually gives producers like Russia and potentially other oil producers outsized geopolitical power because it allows them to kind of take that moment of vulnerability and try to translate that into politics. So, you know, I think that we, instead, when we look at the energy transition, rather than just thinking about some far off end state in which oil states don't have a lot of power, we have to think about, well, over time, once the world starts to bend that demand for oil, again, it's not there yet, but hopefully it'll be there soon, starts to pin that demand and the world is consuming less and less oil, but it's still consuming a lot of oil. Who's going to meet? Who's going to meet that oil demand? And the answer is generally, it's going to be Saudi Arabia. It's going to be the Emirates. It's going to be producers that can produce at a very low cost and that have relatively clean greenhouse gas footprints. And so those, that tends to point to countries in the Gulf. And so that actually means rather than these states getting less powerful, they may get more powerful first because they're going to be producing a higher percentage of the oil that the world is using. 
And with that will definitely come some geopolitical advantages. So again, it's that kind of thinking that, you know, leads us to reconsider the idea, oh, this is just going to get easier and easier or better and better over time. Instead, there are going to be some real hurdles to, to climb over and some real obstacles to navigate, you know, to make sure that we can stay on track despite the, you know, the geopolitical complexities of it all. That makes sense. And then to continue to the second theme that you're looking at and the supply chain of renewable energy and related areas, right now we're seeing two main trends, one being supply chain constraints being felt in electric vehicles, in um, solar PV production and other areas. And then the other one is trying to counteract that protectionism and bringing manufacturing onshore and the sourcing of these critical materials. What do you think are the biggest implications of the supply chain dynamics in that same time period of the the short-term implications? So in the next few years. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this, I'm glad it's getting a lot more attention than it has been for some time because it is a problem that probably has been creeping up on us for us, I guess I'm saying the West for a long time without us fully appreciating, you know, how potentially serious it is. And, and that is just like the overwhelming reliance on, it, it depends what country you ask, but maybe it's 40, maybe it's 50 minerals that go into helping make clean energy components. So, you know, it, it could be nickel, it could be cobalt, it could be lithium, you know, there, there's, a, a, as I said, a wide range of these um, minerals that are required. And because of the energy transition, not exclusively, but largely because of the energy transition, the sense is that the world is going to have to expedite growth in production very dramatically. So the International Energy Agency came out with a great report in May of 2021 that looked at this and said, like, okay, how much how much are we going to how much more are we going to need of these critical minerals if we're going to stay on track to to get to a net zero future? And they found, you know, between now and 2040, the world will need just generally four to five times more of these critical minerals. And if we look at individual critical minerals, something like lithium, they found we're going to need 42 times what the world is producing right now. So these are huge, huge demands on an industry that isn't very quick to scale. This is a mining endeavor. You know, this is siting mines, locating them, getting them permitted, building them, building the infrastructure. All of this takes, you know, a very long time. In the U.S., the average, I think, is 16 years. In other parts of the world, it may be a bit less, but it's still very, very time intensive. So I think there's two concerns. One is, are we simply going to be able to produce enough of these minerals that the world can stay on track to meet these, to meet these goals of net zero 2050? Or is this going to turn into a very material constraint on the ability of the world to make the energy transition? And then the second piece, you know, gets at the supply chain issue that you were referring to is that these supply chains are heavily dominated by China. So although many of these minerals are produced in different parts of the world, in most cases, they go back to China to be refined and processed before they're sold again into the market. And this obviously gives China a lot of influence on these markets and on countries that that may 
you know, need these minerals and, and that China may be one of the only sources for um, them to acquire these minerals. And so I think that's the second uh, concern is to what extent can that reliance on China be mitigated so that it doesn't, you know, confer big geopolitical advantages on China and really leave it to China to decide how quickly or slowly the energy transition moves. Or even, you know, I've heard a lot of private companies say to me that, you know, they're not sure about making big investments into developing new production capability when they know that China at any moment could just dump a lot of production on the market, cause the price of the commodity to crash and make it not economical for them to make an investment that may take, you know, a decade or two to actually play out. Thanks. Yeah, the the scenario that you just laid out, it's very reminiscent of early 2000 solar PV markets. And it, I can see how that situation would create a lot of hesitancy. The materials supply chain has, has been more of a focus of the Biden administration and trying to figure out how the U.S. should be handling that from a strategic perspective, as I'm sure you're closely following. And even in the early stages of that, we've seen a lot of interesting tensions domestically play out when you have these competing priorities of you know, pumping up mining in some of these sectors that are tied to clean industry, but the mining industry itself, you know, has other implications on communities and the environment. So it'll be really interesting to see how all of that plays out. Um, Nick, before we go on to the next question, just to, to build on what you were saying, what I think many people, at least, you know, some of the people that I have taught here at Harvard have been surprised to discover that a lot of the constraints that have kept pipelines and other pieces of infrastructure for fossil fuels being developed also are applying to, you know, getting mine sited or even getting other renewable energy infrastructure put in place. You know, America is believed to have some of the largest lithium uh, deposits in the world, but they're really hard to develop in the United States. And for the same reason that it's really hard to lay a pipeline because of concerns over water, concerns about community concerns about disrupting sacred tribal lands. You know, there are a lot of, of the same issues that have created obstacles in the dirty energy landscape, if you want to call it that, that are going to prove to be just as challenging to navigate in the clean energy landscape. Definitely. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to follow and it, I'm sure it will not be easy. So we'll see how it all plays out in, in the next few years and beyond. We're going to shift back somewhat into the lens of petrostates, uh, but I think more specifically into the topic of Ukraine and the situation that's been playing out between Russia and Ukraine and the European Union and, and the conflict more broadly. I think that you know we'd be remiss to have a conversation about energy geopolitics without doing a deep dive into that space. So. Picking up on some of the latest news there, we saw last week the European Union announcing plans to embargo Russian oil as a measure to try to inflict pain on Russia and to try to put additional pressure on Putin. Those discussions are ongoing and we'll see what actually comes out of that proposal. But how do you think about that proposed action by the EU? Did it surprise you? And if it does go through, what are some of the major short-term and even potentially longer-term implications that you think that might have? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it, you're right. 
this is a moment where all of these things are not theoretical. They're really playing out on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, as I understand it, the EU is getting pretty close to this oil embargo that it has been considering. And there's some interesting dimensions to it. But to answer your first question about was I surprised, I would say I was not surprised. If you had asked me back in January or even February, if I thought Europe would get to where it is now, I would have said no. But I think the the gravity of the conflict, the horrific nature of Russian actions in Ukraine, and just the the depth of destruction has been such a, a wake-up call to the Europeans and to the international community that Europe has moved far beyond where I think most Europeans thought it would go. And it's not only in sanctions and energy, although it's an important manifestation, but it's also in security policy and diplomatic policy. You know, that there's really, really, I'd say a profound shift in European attitudes towards what kind of partner Russia can be, whether or not Russia can be a reliable supplier. I just don't think you're going to hear that language in Europe, which we've heard for decades, maybe ever again. I think the days of Russia as an energy superpower are probably limited. In terms of the actual embargo itself, as I understand it right now, the idea is to do a phased embargo. So over the course of 2022, that there would be no more Russian oil imported into the EU. And there'd be some exceptions to that. So maybe 95% of the oil that currently flows from Russia into the EU would no longer be permitted with exceptions for Hungary and maybe a couple of other countries that are very, very heavily reliant on, on Russian energy. So in terms of like what what to watch for, you know, oil, as you both know, is a very different commodity than natural gas. And so being a global market and being a very fungible commodity that's easy to move around and easy to store, you know, most economists would tell you this will have no medium term impact. It'll only it'll have just short disruption that basically you'll have the oil that Russia would have sold to Europe will go somewhere else in the world. And then the oil that was going to that somewhere else will now go to Europe. I think we're going to find this to be a more difficult reshuffling than certainly economic theory would suggest. But even that, even for a practical level, I think there are going to be some real uh, challenges to that. And I'll just name two of them. So the first one is the Europeans are right now at least still considering the possibility of adding sanctions to getting insurance on shipping Russian oil. And for a variety of reasons, that could prove to be very difficult to insure any shipments of Russian oil. And that could lead a lot of traders to stay away from that oil. So it may, it will certainly be an obstacle to that reshuffling I was talking about. Secondly, the question is which countries are going to buy huge quantities of Russian oil that used to go to Europe? Because right now, half of Russia's oil is flowing to Europe. So we get another 50% of that oil going to other markets. You know, is China, is India, are these countries going to be willing to purchase this excess oil? And they'll be attracted to it because the Russians will have to offer a significant discount. And India has already shown an interest in this. But, you know, the question is, are they going to absorb half of Russia's oil yet again? And again, I think there are going to be limitations on how much Russian oil the Chinese will want. You know, they have a very, the Chinese have a very 
intentional policy that their energy security is met by having a diverse supply base. And so, you know, they're not interested in having one supplier supply more than 15 or 20% of, of their energy. And so why they would suddenly rely on Russia to make up a much greater percentage of that is, is not obvious to me. So I think, um, again, the short term, there's going to be a lot of disruption as the oil markets try to sort this out. My expectation is that a good amount of this oil will find new homes in the system, but that a significant amount won't. And so I do think we're going to see a bump up in prices because of this. Over the long term, what does this mean? And, you know, here, um, here I think this gets into a question, the question of, you know, what what is going to be the European trajectory around meeting energy security needs versus meeting commitments to get to a net zero future? So when we're considering Europe no longer purchasing Russian oil or potentially other sources of Russian energy, coal being one that they've already decided to cut off, and there are, of course, questions around natural gas. You know, we get to this larger question about to what extent is Europe going to be able to use this geopolitical crisis as a way of expediting the need to meet immediate energy security needs, while at the same time not foregoing the benchmarks they need to hit in order to be true to their net zero goals and capacities. It also, I think, is really a global question because the implications of this crisis in Ukraine are really truly global in nature. We could go through so many different levels of implications for what has happened between Ukraine and Russia, the impact that it's had on European energy markets, the impact it's had on Asian energy markets, which have in some ways had to forego a lot of natural gas that has been pulled to Europe by higher prices, the impact on the use of coal. All of these things matter and play into the broad question of what does this mean for the energy transition? I'd say for Europe, um, you know, in, in the interest of being a little succinct, I would say that Europe, I think, has the potential because of the political will and the relative resources to do both, to focus on meeting energy security needs now and still staying true to these obligations or commitments to get to net zero. But this will require more government involvement. It will require more synchronization of European energy policies so that there are sufficient incentives for companies to make big investments in fossil fuel infrastructure. But at the same time, you know, that fossil fuel infrastructure will probably be unlikely to live out its useful economic life. So if you're a potential investor, you really want to know, why should I make this investment if you're telling me that, you know, 20 years of the commercial life of this infrastructure, it's not going to be viable to, to use this infrastructure. So, you know, am I going to get a payback period in a shorter amount of time? Am I going to get some kind of subsidy for trying to turn this infrastructure into infrastructure that's compatible with the clean energy future? I think these are questions that, you know, the governments will really need to find compelling answers to if, in fact, Europe is going to be in a position to, to meet both of those goals. And the place where I'd really worry about these two things, energy security and climate security coming into conflict is the developing world. And the reason for that is even before the crisis in Ukraine, so many countries in the developing world had this enormous challenge of trying to address energy access issues. The fact that, you know, 
800 million people have no access to electricity and to try to keep their eye on the carbon agenda and the need to decarbonize the economy at the same time. And that was incredibly hard to do both of those things before the crisis. But now the crisis adds on top of it high fuel costs, likely in many parts of the developing world, high food costs, and a developed world that's going to be increasingly distracted and probably not providing the kinds of support that it had promised to the developing world. So, you know, in that context, I think we're already seeing that there's more of an interest by the developing country to keep using coal. You know, natural gas is a lot more expensive than it was a few months ago. And coal is looking better. And if it's environmentally unfriendly, well, that is the unfortunate part of the trade-off. That's how many countries will end up thinking. And I think that, you know, could turn into a real crisis for meeting our climate goals collectively. I love where that went. And I, I think it summarizes well how interconnected this whole system yeah. is that we go from a, a question about, you know, the EU consideration of an embargo to, to all of the domino effects that come out of that. We talked about the, the supply demand imbalances that preceded some of the escalation of conflict in Russia and Ukraine. We have now the war in Ukraine and the West at least seemingly being more willing to take strong action to boost energy security. A lot of different moving parts. Are there any you know, overarching lessons or, or uh, comments you would make on how decision-making for policymakers might have changed over that period? Sure. Let me highlight two things. The first is the whole question of energy security. And I think the big lesson coming out of the conflict right now is how important energy security is in the, the landscape of everything. I think particularly uh, on the side of Europe, the whole conversation about energy security was kind of regarded as like a backward looking conversation, a conversation about the past. And the, the real focus was on the transition and really 2050 and getting there. Whereas I think the real lesson from this episode is that if we don't keep an eye on providing basic needs of energy that are affordable and reliable, that creates the potential for conflicts, which are perhaps the biggest threat to successful energy transition. Because if you think about the kinds of politics, I mean, right now it's fairly muted in Europe because the high energy prices are, um, you know, the pain of the high energy prices are being blunted by the actions of governments. You have governments all over the continent spending billions and billions of dollars to try to insulate consumers from the impact of these high energy prices. But eventually that won't be sustainable. And, you know, we'll kind of see what sort of politics evolve as a result of extremely costly energy prices, which will have a big impact on economies as a whole. And the question is, you know, is it really realistic to think that we're going to be able to get communities to make more economic and other kinds of circumstances to complete an energy transition when they're already in crisis from an energy security problem. So I think, you know, again, the first lesson is energy security needs to come back to the front burner and that if we fail to meet the energy needs of the population in the short term, there's not going to be uh, a real ability to convince people to bear costs and hardship related to the transition as a whole. 
The other, I guess, lesson or takeaway that I would highlight, it's this whole question or idea about government intervention that, you know, in the 1970s, the energy crises there ended up wreaking a lot of havoc on the American and other economies, in part because they involved so many government interventions to try to stem the worst impact. So there were price controls and quotas and all kinds of things that in retrospect, most people recognize that actually government intervention just made the crisis more acute and more prolonged. And that led to you know many decades of people thinking the best way to ensure energy security is to keep the government out of energy markets. And that's largely been adhered to But I think now we're seeing that we can't reach complex and sometimes contradictory goals if we don't have more intervention from government. So, you know, I think the lesson here is not a call for government intervention a la the 1970s, but for thoughtful new policy innovations that help provide the right incentives to the private sector and to the public sector so that both of these objectives, meeting energy security, and transitioning to a low-carbon economy or a zero-carbon economy can be done at the same time. Thanks for that, Megan. One thing we like to end the podcast on, given that we are an MBA-focused podcast, is pieces of advice that our guests have for our listeners who are typically current students or former students listening in, as well as friends of the podcast. So based on your own career or the field that you're, you're working in, What kind of advice would you have for graduate students looking to find jobs in that space or generally figuring out what they want to work in after graduating from school? Sure. Um, Let me, uh, this is like advice giving season, right? As everybody embarks on graduation, I wish you and your your colleagues um, best of luck and whatever comes next. I, I just say a couple of sort of very general but quick points. I mean, the first is, I always advise people to work on the hard problems, right? And this energy and the energy transition, these are the hard problems of our time. And these are the problems that are worthy of a lifetime of labor, right? So, you know, I encourage people not to shy away from them, not to think they're too big or they're too complicated. They're certainly all of those things, but they're definitely, you know, working on the hard problems are the kind of thing that's going to build the greatest professional satisfaction over time. And then I would say also, and this is something that all of you have undoubtedly heard many times is, you know, reflecting on my own career, I just think about the real importance of mentors and um, that they've made a tremendous difference in pretty much everything about my professional life. And almost always, I can't think of any exception right now for the better. And, you know, people then ask me, especially at the time of life where you are like, well, how do you, how do you get mentors? You know, you can't just like order them online. How do you, how do you get them? And your most likely mentors are going to be the people who are your bosses. And so, you know, when you're thinking about what kind of, you know, you're thinking about your high class problem of having more than one job offer, you know, a real important question to weigh really heavily is what kind of boss are you going to work for? Is this a person that you're going to respect, that you're going to learn from, and that's going to take the time to invest in your success? And if the answer is yes, that's going to be, that should weigh heavily in your decision-making. And especially if the answer is no in your other choice, because having a better boss is almost better than having a, a really excellent portfolio. 
and then the last thing I'll say is just, uh, and, and Nick has heard me say this before, this is the best bit of advice I was given. And it is that few people are stronger than the environment in which they place themselves. And, you know, I thought about a lot what that means, but it basically means think about the things that you want to be evaluated on, you want to be judged by, that you want to be the metrics of success in your life and put yourself in an environment where those are the metrics for success. Because if you do otherwise, you'll find a disconnect that ultimately will be sad, dissatisfying over time. And if you do align the values that you want to be judged, and I don't just mean values, but metrics, like what's important in your career should be what's important to you. That leads to, again, a lot of satisfaction. Amazing. Thank you, Megan, so much for sharing your pieces of advice. I remember the last day of your geopolitics of energy class going through advice you had from your career and writing all of those down and the emphasis on the last one. We really appreciate you coming on and speaking with us. Hope to speak with you again soon. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being with both of you and wish you and all of your friends and colleagues lots of luck as you embark on the next chapter. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Stay tuned for new episodes and connect with the Wharton Current on Twitter for all up-to-date information.